Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Oh, it's sweltering, isn't it? It's the hottest day of the year. It's the hottest day in history at the moment. It's a climate, it's a climate effect. Look, I've got to come straight away and I've got a confession to make. What is it? Um, well, I didn't know how to put this, but I mean, I've had another offer. Um, I mean, basically, Theresa May's approached me to say, <laughs> could we co-host a podcast <laughs> called Nothing's Changed? Uh, I've turned her down. But I just didn't want this to be sort of... I didn't want to hide it from you. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's just... It's an expression of my love for you. This is a beautiful thing. That I've said no. You could have gone out as a double act, strong and stable. It's because a few months ago I said, if it all goes wrong for you, you've got a great future as a podcaster. So she came to me (laughs) and said, you know, maybe we could join up. But I've said, I've said, she should set one up on her own. I'm going to give her all the encouragement she she, she needs. And you don't want to bring her into our marriage? There are three people in this... too complicated, actually. (laughs) I think that would be too complicated. Well, t- today uh, you you um, you went to Boris Johnson's first debate. It was sort of appalling. <laughs> I, I can't tell you any. There was no redeeming features to it. Right, right. It was just sort of bluster and bluffery and buffoonery. More of the same then. Yeah. So here's here's a question: Are you allowed in the House of Commons, like on a day like today, hot as it is, are you allowed to go in in shorts and a t-shirt if you want to? No. So what is the dress code then? Well, I think there's some debate about whether you have to wear a tie or not. Really? Yeah, but honestly, that feels like we're in sort of Titanic territory, I think, really. And and what about uh, if you were wearing sandals? Would you be allowed in in sandals? I think the sandals would probably be all right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Does it get hot in there? 
it didn't no i think everybody was so focused on the sort of i mean don't you find it sort of slightly unbelievable what's happened Yes, I think, you know, many people have said it's like watching uh, uh, dystopian science fiction unfold in slow motion. I think it's really got a, a touch of that to it, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean... I, I and it's like it's, a zombie movie as I, well with some of the people who are coming back I, from the dead politically. I think it's sort of testing the name of this podcast to its limits, don't you think? Yeah, so, OK, OK, let's let's um, let, let's move away from that and celebrate the fact that I bought a new fan then. And, Which and is the same, you went, you saw the Queen kissing hands or boris johnson kissing the queen's hands you bought her fan well i didn't know until you, Do you think said... there's gonna be a big rise in sales of that fan so what is it? i didn't know until you said so right well that's the one she had in the picture with boris johnson i mean in the corner. I, I bought it basically it was such a ridiculous price i went to the john lewis's yesterday to buy a fan because i was so hot yeah and there were so many people panic buying fans that was the only one that was available to take away all the others you'd have to have to wait 24 hours to pick up and i could see a man eyeing it up and just out of desperation i bought this ridiculously expensive fan just so that i would have a fan right yeah and with the, are you the, happy with it Mm, not really. I mean, we just had it on us. So we had to turn it off for the microphones, but it was just blowing hot air in our faces, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so there you go. Well, look, we're powering through, aren't we? Brave soldiers that we are. We're, we're sort of powering on. Well, I don't mean the heat. I mean, the overall sort of shitty situation. We are powering on. And this week's topic takes us away from Westminster and it takes us out into nature. It's an alternative universe. This week we're talking about trees uh, and yeah, this is important. Trees can play a major role in tackling the climate crisis by drawing in carbon and helping us to meet zero emissions. But they have other benefits too. They can cool down cities, improve well-being and boost biodiversity. At the moment, the UK has one of the lowest rates of tree cover in Europe. Woodland covers just 13% of the UK at the moment. The Committee on Climate Change has proposed increasing it. Friends of the Earth argue we should aim to double it. We'll be talking to Emmy Murphy from Friends of the Earth about their proposal. Tree expert... King of the Jungle, Rob McKenzie, will tell us about the science and a huge experiment he's running known as Sci-Fi Forest, and that's why we call him King of the Jungle. And then we're joined by Felix Finkbeiner, who set up a tree planting campaign called Plant for the Planet when he was just nine years old. He was a Greta Thunberg of his day, and we'll be asking him about his idea of planting one trillion trees across the world. And also, I have a little extra request to read out. We don't normally do requests, but this one is a special one. This is a letter that I've been written by Cassidy Lemon. Cassidy is nine years old and she's written me this letter. Dear Ed Meliband, I have a beyond amazing idea. National Tree Planting Day. You could get a sapling. If everyone in London did it for one day, it could change the way we live our lives. Yours sincerely, Cassidy Lemon, age nine, with a nice smiling face. And that's a brilliant letter, I would say, and a brilliant idea. And we could do it not just in London, but across the country or the world. Oh, and another reason to be cheerful is uh, after, after all the tree talk, we are going to be chatting with actor Michael Sheen yep. about the Homeless World Cup, which is happening in Cardiff this week. Should I tell you my reason to be cheerful? Please do. My reason to be cheerful is that I was walking along the street in the heat this week. I was actually on the phone and a guy turned round to me and showed me his phone and there was our logo. He was listening to the podcast and he turns out to be a really nice guy called Ollie. He works at an advertising agency called The Corner. They have these sort of fashionable names these days. And he's written a letter saying, uh, like a groupie meeting his rock hero, I interrupted Ed on the commute earlier this evening. Chum, I was listening to his Reason to be Cheerful podcast. And the so the, the reason to be cheerful about him was well, there's two things. One is that he was a 
I guess an intern or an apprentice at Virgin Radio in 2002, and he remembers you, and he said you were one of the nice guys. Phew. Uh, he said that you didn't throw things, shout, or do any of those things, and you were a really nice person, which I knew would be true. Um, uh, so I thought that was... That, that warmed my heart. That is a relief to hear. He's also a park runner, but he does park run 20 minutes. <laughs> and wh- uh, what are you currently on? Like 26 and change. I think, can, I think you can catch him. Mm, I don't think so. But he was really nice to meet him. And we talked about the environment. He's maybe going to do some work for something I'm involved in around the environment. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, I was hoping it was going to be that fan, really. But as I said, it's just blowing hot air at us. So uh, I could tell you about something I've been watching on TV. Yeah, And it's just finished. It's available to watch on demand. It's this series called Crashing, which is a sitcom about a stand-up comedian in New York. And if you think, oh, God, not another one, this is different to any version of that you've seen in the past. Uh, the, the main character is so likeable. He's a comedian called Pete Holmes. And when we meet him at the beginning of the first series, he's a born-again Christian with this idea to go out and do comedy and it's about how his life develops and he meets these sort of famous people and sleeps on sofas and that was sort of the original concept but it's gone on from there and the third series has just finished it's produced by Judd Apatow and it's it's really good it's got a lot of heart to it but it's so funny as well and they've they've just wrapped it up and there've been three series so if you haven't seen that yet there is something to binge on for you and get away from the news Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are joined now by Emmy Murphy, who is lead campaigner on trees at Friends of the Earth, and Professor Rob McKenzie, who is Professor of Atmospheric Science at the University of Birmingham and Director of the Birmingham Institute of Forest Research. Hello, both. Hello. 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 Emmy, I wondered if we could start by uh, getting you to just explain how, because the, the UK has made this commitment to net zero emissions by 2050. I wonder if you could explain to us what role trees can play in that. There's so much talk right now about uh, action on climate and the fact that we need to take uh, urgent action on climate. And one of the things we as Friends of the Earth really pride ourselves with is the solutions that we have for people and government. And trees is one of those solutions. And it's just to emphasise the fact that trees are part of a package of climate action that we should be taking. And it's about drawing in carbon. Yeah, so drawing in carbon, um, something that we call negative emissions, which is drawing in carbon from the atmosphere. And it also has a whole host of other benefits as well. So we will be living in times of a bit more like flooding and heat waves and that kind of thing. And it's unfortunate that that's kind of where we are right now. But trees can help us provide shade, like within urban settings, um, and flooding, and lots of flood prevention measures as well. And it's great for our well-being. So there's a whole host of other benefits along with and, combating. And you want change. to just to be clear about this. Friends of the Earth have an ambitious target to double the amount of tree cover in the UK from 13 to 26%, which goes beyond what the government's official advisors, the Climate Change Committee, have recommended. We have to be really ambitious. We're in this age where we actually have to start urgent action now. Um, and we feel kind of the 19% that the Committee on Climate Change have kind of given, we're really keen for it to go above and beyond that. So that's why we're saying 26%. And it's also possible. So we've done some uh, illustrative scenarios on mapping. And for us, it's only England focus. This is possible. So we're not going to be planting trees on crops. So we will still have food and we can have trees as well. Um, so there is land for that if we're kind of very clever with how we use the land. Um, the and I think I'm right in saying that Scotland is already at 19%. Yes, yes. So, so, which is interesting. Now, 
Rob, we are incredibly excited we're to giddy, hear. Giddy. We, we are giddy to hear about the sci-fi forest. Tell us about the sci-fi forest, which is your forest. Uh, well, um, it's the forest I have the privilege of working in. Yeah, you, you um, are the king of the sci-fi forest. King of the jungle. Yes. King of King of the jungle. Yeah. That, okay. I'll, I'll I'll live with that for the moment. <laughs> Although if if there was a video link, I um I don't think I would quite quite match up to anyone. Oh, uh, you're being too hard on mental yourself. Mental image Rob. of a king of the jungle. But um, what we're trying to do is provide some numbers to more firmly underpin um the story that you've just had from Emmy. Tell and us what it is, the sci-fi forest. The sci-fi forest is a forest um where we have put. Uh, a whole load of um, plumbing into an existing mature oak woodland so that we can gently leak into that woodland um, extra carbon dioxide so that we take parts of the forest, patches of the forest, into the carbon dioxide atmosphere that the whole planet will be in by about 2050. So it's modelling the future and seeing what role trees can play in absorbing carbon dioxide at, at higher levels and significantly higher levels than we have at the moment. And what have you discovered? Well, what we found very gratifyingly is that the trees so far in the first three seasons of our measurements um, are able to continue drawing down um, extra carbon dioxide when you, when you offer it to them. Uh, there, there, of course, is a, there's a kind of a balanced diet argument here, which made us worry that um, as carbon dioxide concentrations increase and increase and increase, there'll come a point when forests just can't make any use of, of that extra resource. Of course, plants use carbon dioxide uh, for photosynthesis. It's their, the basis of, the, of all the food chains. Um, but, the, but they need a balanced diet. And we were worried that the forest we're looking at uh, would not be able to make use of this extra carbon dioxide. But what, in fact, we are finding is that it is making use of that carbon dioxide and it's making use of it to explore what uh, extra resources it can find below ground. Tell us about the other benefits of trees. Cool cities, Emmy sort of hinted at this, cool cities, well-being, etc. Is that part of your research? The shade element that Emmy mentioned is is very well attested and is, um, I think, going to be very obvious in the next few days, because uh, when it gets hot in cities, you will find that the inhabitants of the city head for parkland and they head t- um, for trees and get themselves into the shade of trees. You get a huge benefit uh, from uh, taking yourself out of the direct solar loading, the d- direct sunshine load on your on your person, especially on your bald head, if you're bald like I am becoming. That shade uh, is, is a very significant uh, benefit, but of course it benefits very locally. So we need to disperse uh, that benefit out into those communities which currently are, are very nature poor. Uh, sustainable urban drainage is something that the engineers have worked on uh, for a few decades now and they know very well. It's, it's very handy to have uh, trees as part of those green areas that, that just soak away the flood water and try and prevent these floods, these very, very uh, flash, flashy floods that we get now from having so much hard surface in our, uh, in our cities. That last uh, element that Emmy mentioned is a little bit more amorphous. It's a little bit more difficult to grasp and harder to get really 
rigorous scientific proof, but there is a there is a greater and greater body of evidence that all points in the same direction as far as well-being. Emmy, can I ask you about how we get to your target? Like, what does it look like? How do we do it? Where do these trees go? Very good question. We are proposing... So when you go out of your town or city, uh, there's an area called Greenbelts. I don't know if you kind of reflect back on a train journey that you've gone out of a town or city, and when you go right outside of it, the land looks slightly... I don't want to say the word barren, but it's just not that well used. And some of it is farmlands and it's very, very important farmlands. Um, but what we're saying is around these towns and cities in these greenbelt areas, we can have some trees planted there. And it's kind of a lots mix- of trees, lots of trees, yeah, <laughs> lots of trees planted there. Um, and that's in part as well. We've there's this kind of uh, grading uh, where it goes from one to five on soil and we're saying grade four poor soil conditions are okay for a lot of trees Um, and having them outside of towns and cities will also mean that people can access it a lot better as well from their towns and cities because they want the nature and a lot of people want to have nature on their doorstep again so it's a mixture of that and then on the uplands as well a lot of it is in Scotland at the moment but these uplands um, can be also where trees can be planted which means that we're not kind of growing over like I said valuable food crops or even you know housing developments but trees should be part of the landscape and that's why we're really really keen to focus on the green belt in particular. We say doubling tree cover it is possible because interestingly the last hundred years right after the first world war we were on five percent um, of tree cover in the UK um, and now we've gone up to 13%. It has so, gone up over time yeah, hasn't it which is interesting maybe what people wouldn't expect people wouldn't necessarily expect it. Yeah exactly some t- you know some of it is for partly the wrong reasons of you know it's really important to have the right trees in the right place we don't want to be planting trees on a uh, peatland for example which are huge carbon sinks that are incredibly valuable for us and it's part of this package of natural climate solutions and restoring peatlands is a separate thing that could help us on the climate targets yes yes and we should absolutely not be planting trees and then we should uh, let them kind of be as they want to be in the peatland area um, so it really is about the right trees in the right place. In the last hundred years, there's been some examples of where that hasn't happened. And we want like a mixture of trees as well. There's been quite a lot of conifer plantations that kind of have happened in the past. Um, and we need to be a bit careful of that because they don't support biodiversity. And we're very much around mixed woodlands, um, which is really important. Rob, I mean, I assume you agree we need to plant more trees. What's, what, what's, what's your thinking? Well, I, I just would really strongly endorse what Emmy's just said, actually, that um, it needs to be the right tree in the right place. I suppose it, it really is about that um, mixed economy of forest. We need to keep an eye on the dual target of carbon removal and biodiversity encouragement improvement. Yeah. Because if we don't do that, the obvious answer is to plant monocultures of very fast-growing trees. Monocultures means just one type of tree, correct? One type of yeah, tree, yeah, yeah. yeah. So biodiversity is the principal reason why we shouldn't do this. If we want um, our woodlands to be ecologically resilient, it is much better for us to have a diverse woodland treescape out through the, throughout all of the UK. Um, and that's simply uh, because the, the more that we rely on a few species planted in monocultures, the more that we are at the mercy of pests and diseases coming in and wiping the whole thing out and leaving us no better off than we were to begin with. So, Rob, let me ask what I think is probably a bit, is a bit of a stupid question, but 
I'm conscious that we're trying to do this at least at the latest by 2050, but trees take time to grow. Is that an issue? You know, how quickly do we need to plant them? We are in a climate emergency. So what we are seeking to do is to draw carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for the next few decades. And trees are really good at that. They're, in fact, they are the only technology that we know works at scale. And they can do, do it quickly, can they? And they can do it quick. Well, yes, they can do it over those decades. And they do it over those decades because if, if you put young plants into a grassy field, then those, those young trees will grow very quickly. That's uh, your primary way of drawing the carbon dioxide down. We'll also gain some carbon dioxide benefit uh, from a thing called carbon dioxide fertilization, which is what the sci-fi forest is is telling us. And that is that mature mature forests, forests that have been around for a long time, are also locking carbon dioxide down, you know, even now, and will continue doing that in the future. So they've done the sums. That does work over some uh, some decades, let's say half a century, 50 years. Climate is a more than 50 years problem. So we do have to then, after we've addressed the emergency, we do have to think about what are we going to do with this carbon that is now in the wood of the forests? And the sensible thing to do with that is to take some of it out carefully without disturbing the carbon that's been locked in the ground, take some of the stems out and use it in a way that doesn't put it back into the atmosphere, especially to replace very high CO2-emitting processes like concrete production for building. I mean, it's obviously quite encouraging. Friends of the Earth say that if you double the amount of land, it can take out 10% of the UK's current carbon emissions. So, so it is doable. Yeah, it's doable. From our side, it's the, the government need to take action now, really, and start properly committing to, um, I'm careful to say number of trees, because we're really specific around tree cover, not number of trees, because it's much more around the land that trees are on, um, rather than the number of trees, because an old tree and a young sapling are very, very different, and the space that they have. It's just, again, the fact that the government really need to just make actual proper commitments and increase the targets. And how are they doing on that? What what have they said? Not great. Right. So at the moment, the government have committed to increase uh, tree cover in England specifically from 10% to 12% by 2060. So that's very, very minimal. Um, And it's easy to talk about millions of trees, but actually it's not a lot when you translate that into uh, the, the way that it's going to cover land. Um, so that's why I'm really, really keen to push that target as much as possible. Big job opportunities here. I mean, this is part of the argument is that, you know, this isn't just like, let's save the planet. Of course, we all care about that. There are all these other benefits, but also it can create lots of jobs for people, presumably. Uh, Tree planting. Yeah, yeah. But and also, maintaining. Yeah. And also, um, a pos- uh, we call it like just transition where like farmers at the moment, if they're funded right from uh, kind of the government level and from the council's level um, to do tree friendly farming, um, that will not only benefit them in the short term with kind of shade for crops and what have you, um, but also in the long term of, you know, it improves soil health. Um, but they need to be supported funding wise with that, too. We, we hear this word um, rewilding bandied around a lot these days. Uh, what is that and how does it play into this? So it's a different type of conservation method, if I say it like that. So um, it's a way for us to 
leave the land alone in, in very, very, very simple terms. At the moment, we don't have a lot of nature in the UK um, and a lot of species decline and like the lack of trees has been due to habitat loss and other other things. So rewilding is basically, I have some land, I can leave this bit of land to let nature do its own thing, create its own ecosystems. But at the moment, because of the lack of nature we have in the UK, we'll have to have a bit of human interaction with kind of letting it become wild. So helping it along. seems, yeah, a bit contradictory, yeah. And then, and then leaving it well alone after a set number of years. And I think that's dependent on where you're really at and what you do. And trees can be definitely a part of that picture. Rob, anything to add on that? It definitely needs a helping hand because you will not get back to anything even... Uh, remotely wild uh, from the starting points that the UK uh, landscape is in currently. At its uh, most ambitious, it involves putting large animals back into the landscape. And for that, you need large-ish areas. Um, And so it can sometimes seem like an impossible dream. But ultimately, the top predators are what you want, uh, because at the moment, we have quite a lot of uh, large herbivores in, in and around our forests, they're well large-ish the deer, and they're viewed as just a as just a problem because uh, there's no way of managing them without us being involved, uh, usually shooting them out. Um, so it's about re-establishing the food chain, and that usually means ultimately putting in some top predators. So like a wolf and a bear, like a wolf, like a bear. Yeah. Wow. What's your top predator, Rob? What's your favourite top predator? Quite keen on the lynx. Oh, oh interesting. Emmy, top oh, predator. No. I need to have a think now. I quite like a cougar. I think that's wow, quite an nice. interesting choice. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is a utopia with me installed as a benign leader. I'm, I'm very sort of tree friendly. I like a sh- I like the shade. So if I was to make you both what minister for forests, minister for the minister for the environment, a, a dual Ministers role for throwing shade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is, Why what not? Is, what is the first thing you would do in office? For the Minister of Throwing Shade. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, first thing I would do is increase the target massively from where we're at now um, and open up land as much as possible and really push the fact that uh, trees should be a part of our landscape. If we're going to do some small steps at the moment, moving the realistic person that I am, looking at the green belts and really having kind of like climate forests or what have you around those towns and cities and starting from there and getting everyone involved so communities uh, from the community level to landowners to farmers and government maybe my colleagues at that level at that point um, to really get stuck into not only planting trees and maintaining them and also making sure that we're doing other climatey uh, action because um, very very keen for this not to be an excuse for offsetting um, but we need to slash emissions as well as uh, plant trees alongside Rob well, I suppose as an academic, I'm duty bound to say um, that perhaps my second action would be to make sure that we get the evidence uh, properly underpinned. And I think we have been, as a country, woefully neglectful of the science of woody plants and woody plants in the environment. So I think the first thing I would do is shake up the research councils and get them to work um, as, a, as a united body on this, uh, on this uh, problem that faces us. Uh, I said that was the second thing. The first thing I would do is really find the mechanisms that will unlock 
the concerns or, or assuage the concerns that landowners have about this permanent conversion of land to forest. Excellent. Well, look, I think they both got the job. Uh, Emmy Murphy and Professor Rob McKenzie, King of the Jungle, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. On the phone now in Zurich, we have Felix Finkbeiner, who is founder of Plant for the Planet. Felix, hello. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. And I wondered if we could start by talking about your, your incredible story of how you launched Plant for the Planet. This, this started when you were nine years old, right? Exactly. I was a fourth grader at the time, and my teacher asked me to give a little talk in my class about the climate crisis. And when I prepared it, I found out about Vangari Matai, a woman from Kenya who had started a movement where uh, millions of women or hundreds, hundreds of thousands of women across Kenya planted a total of 30 million trees in um, 30 years. And that uh, made me think that we should be planting trees as well to tackle the climate crisis. That's why a few weeks later, a couple of friends and I planted our first tree. And we had that absurd goal of planting one million trees in each country of the world. But I think that was just because a million was the biggest number we knew. Right. And I don't think any of us knew what, uh, how many countries even existed. <laughs> but um, we were incredibly lucky because two local journalists reported about our project. And that's how some other local schools found out and started planting some trees as well. And then a slightly older student made a very simple website for us, which was essentially just a ranking among local schools of who had planted the most uh, trees. And that way, um, lots of schools wanted to get to the top of that leaderboard, wanted to outcompete their neighboring schools, and that's how Plant for the Planet spread. After one year, we had planted about 50,000 trees, and after three years, a million. And then children and youth all across the world started joining us. This is incredible. So it literally went from a thing that was born out of a school report, you get your friends to start planting trees, other local schools hear about it and think we'll have a bit of that. And now you, you've somehow ended up running the United Nations tree campaign. So do you want to tell me what specifically the trillion tree campaign is? You know, why do you advocate for one trillion new trees specifically? The now trillion tree campaign actually started off as a billion tree campaign. This was back in 2006, before I even planted my first tree. Um, and it was actually started by our big hero, Vangari Matai, um, together with the UN. And they had the goal that globally a billion trees should be planted. And some governments, companies, and organizations around the world started planting trees, and they soon achieved that goal of a billion trees, then two billion trees, and a total of 12 billion trees. And that is unfortunately when, when Vangari Matai passed away. Um, and that is when the UN asked us to continue leading this project. So obviously, this project had far outgrown its original goal of the billion trees. So we started asking ourselves, where do we go from here? What's the next step? And in that process, we had two very obvious questions. The first one was, how many trees even exist in the world? And the second was, how many additional trees could we plant? And we saw that these were incredibly simple questions. So we asked a couple of ecologists, a couple of climate scientists, but soon noticed that none of them had any answers until we found a team of three excellent researchers at Yale University in the U.S., and they did a three-year research project for us. And the first majorly important um, answer they had for us is that we have around 3 trillion trees globally. So that's about 450 trees per human. And the second 
um, more important information that that team of scientists found out was that globally we have enough space to plant another one trillion trees. Where will these trees go? Uh, can you talk to me about the effort that is required by countries and, and you know, which countries will need to do more than others? I mean, what, what sort of land will they be taking up or, or is the answer it's sort of in every country? So this paper I just mentioned created a global map of all restoration opportunities. So these are areas that could support forests, right? So we're not suggesting planting in deserts or anything like that. But these are all areas that used to be forests in the past and are not currently forests, right? So these are areas that can support forests. And then the researchers deleted all areas that are currently used for agriculture or for settlements or so on, right? So none of that. We wouldn't want to plant on any agricultural lands or be in competition with agriculture. And then they ended up with a global map um, of potential restoration areas. And um, the map shows that all continents um, and in most countries around the world have areas that could be restored. Obviously, the biggest potential for restoration isn't necessarily in Europe, but rather in Latin America, um, in Africa, and also Southeast Asia. And um, the reason why these areas are so important is not just because they have a lot of area that could be restored and that are not currently, that's not currently used for any other um, purposes, but also because um, when we plant trees in tropical parts of the world, the trees grow a lot faster. And because of that, they absorb far more CO2 every year than if you plant a tree in Scotland, for instance. I mean, this has grown far beyond how it started, which was people planting trees. This would need a lot of effort and commitment from from governments. How do you overcome the challenges of that, the sort of cost and getting the political will to do it? So the political will is actually already uh, much more advanced than I think most people would expect. Um, Over 60 countries around the world, and these are especially African and Latin American countries, have made plans of what forest they want to restore in, uh, in their country. For instance, Tanzania is one of those 60 countries which announced that they want to restore 5 million hectares um, of forest in Tanzania. So there is that government buy-in. The government tend to be very enthusiastic uh, about tree planting, not just because of its impact on the climate, but also because of all the wonderful benefits to the local population. Because if you restore forests that um, tends to um, regulate the, the water cycle, which means that agricultural yields tend to improve. There are obviously lots of benefits on biodiversity and so on, and they create a lot of wealth in in that local area because of the jobs created in the tree planting and also the resources that come with these forests. So the government buy-in is already there. The biggest challenge now is funding. We need to get big amounts of money invested in tree planting. And um, to help with that, we're actually in the process of building an app um, which is called Plant for the Planet. The test version is already um, available for the, for the iPhone and Android phones, where people can discover tree planting projects all around the world, pick their favorite project, and then support them directly. So it's really a very simple process. We only need people that are willing to spend some money on tree planting. And tree planting is also a lot cheaper than I think most people would expect. Um, planting a tree costs just about a euro on average. And it's, it's no good for me to go out with an acorn this afternoon and, and just drop it somewhere. That's also valuable, right? Everyone, if you plant a tree in your backyard, that's also great. And you can also go ahead and register it in the app as well as a little contribution. 
But you can also, um, if, if that's not possible for you, simply go on the app and, and find these projects and they donate a couple of pounds to them so they can plant some trees for you. And is there a country that you can point to where they are doing a great job on this and, and we could learn some stuff uh, from them? The Chinese government um, is a great example. China, I think, discovered a lot earlier than most other countries um, how important forests are, especially that this really started in the 70s when they noticed that they had actually destroyed lots of, um, of China's forests and they started to um, restore quite a bit of it. Um, at first, they made a lot of mistakes in that process, planting a lot of monocultures, but in recent years, they've been doing a really amazing job. Mexico has been investing big sums of money in the, in the last few years as well. Um, uh, in, in Europe, I think Norway is the best example, because what Norway has been doing in, in, in the last years, it's offering uh, money to countries around the world to protect their forests. So Norway, for instance, went to the Indonesian government, um, and gave them a billion, uh, a billion dollars um, so they, that they would do a better pro- uh, job at protecting their rainforest. We have a thing on the podcast which imagines the UK as a futuristic utopia with me, Jeff, as the benign ruler. If, if I was to appo- appoint you Minister for Trees, what is the first thing you would do in this country on day one? I think there's two things. First of all, I would give money to Brazil and to other countries with lots of rainforests in exchange for them protecting um, their forests. There's nothing more valuable than that. And the second thing is I'd make it mandatory for British, um, for British companies that they make themselves carbon neutral, right? That means that these British companies need to reduce their carbon emissions as much as possible, as fast as possible. But obviously those uh, British companies can't go from to zero emissions within a year. So in the meantime, they need to compensate their carbon emissions by planting trees or similar projects around the world. Felix, it's an incredible story what you've accomplished already, and I can just tell that this, this is just the beginning of this, really. It was so interesting to talk to you. Felix Finkbeiner, founder of Plant for the Planet, thank you so much. Thank you. So what did you think? Well, I, I think it, to, to some extent it seems like the science is in the early days of the trillion tree stuff, but nobody is arguing that trees are a bad thing. No. Who is anti-tree? Nobody's anti-tree. Maybe we've found a way to unite the nation. I think so. I mean, it's just, if if this works, it's potentially massive. And also it's inspired me to go out and uh, plant an acorn. Well, that's good. Yeah. Actually, what I think is interesting is how much of the time do you spend thinking about land and the land that we use? I'd say between a third... And three-fifths of my time. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. That's quite a big margin, though. Yeah, third and three yeah, 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 yeah. 30 to 60%. Percent. It can really swing could, from one day you, to the next. Could you be more specific? <laughs> um, I just think we don't think about land. We, 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 we basically have taken land for granted, maybe not, in, maybe not in relation to housing, but in terms of the way we use land, sort of non-housing land, we just don't, we just don't, haven't thought about agriculture, farming, what should we be doing, all of those things. And I think... It, What's good about this debate, whether it's about, you know, whether we should be eating more, less meat or planting trees, is that we, we are we are forced to think now about how we're going to deploy our land. I was quite taken aback by, um, the, the, you know, what we talked about, about looking out of a train window. And if you go from yeah. London to Manchester, you'll yeah. see a lot of green. Exactly. But what you won't see a lot of is just nature. It's all cultivated land. I also think it's, as you say, it's like it's inspiring. And like, who could, who's against it? 
I mean, not even Boris Johnson's against trees. Of course, we don't want to take our listeners for granted. And if you are anti-tree, if you really fucking hate them, <laughs> then you can email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. 
Um, um, you know, we'd love you to get involved. And I, and to be honest, I didn't really get it. I thought, why are you spending money and putting time and energy into putting on football stuff for people with homeless issues? Why not just deal with the homeless issues? I didn't quite get it. And then I realized the brilliance of it, which is that the football is the hook. You know, the football is what draws people in. Um, and then once people are starting to play football uh, and turning up, they start to make friends. They start to make social connections. You know, a lot of these, a lot of the people who are involved in it are some of the most excluded and marginalized people in our community. Um, and the football allows you to have access to them, to connect with them in ways that would be very difficult otherwise. Um, suddenly people who have been judged and stigmatized so much feel like they're part of a team. They belong. They're part of a family. A, a lot of the people that you talk to describe it as. Um, and then over time, you start to get a bit more self-confidence. You start to get a bit of pride again, a bit of pride back, um, start to feel uh, a bit more motivated around health and well-being and that kind of stuff. So I saw through Street Football Wales how transformative this could be, you know, using the power of football to break down these sorts of barriers and, and give people a bit of a chance. And then through being involved with it, I became a, a patron of, of theirs. And then I heard that every year there's this homeless World Cup. Um, and Street Football Wales are the, the organization that supply the Welsh teams, men's team and women's team, every year to go to the World, the World Cup, wherever it's being hosted that year. There's a, an umbrella organization called the Homeless World Cup Foundation, and they sort of look after all the Homeless World Cups, and they take bids, you know, like any other big uh, event like this, and they uh, award the, the host nation each year. And so uh, about... So it was in Oslo. I think it was in 2017 in Oslo. And I went with the Welsh teams to that. And uh, and I just saw how it kind of changed people's lives. You know, traveling with the Welsh teams, seeing them traveling abroad for the first time uh, and representing their nation. You know, you can see the effect that that has on people. And I'll never forget this. I was sitting in the stand watching uh, one of the matches with a woman called Dee, who was on the Welsh women's team. And we were just talking and she was telling me about how she'd been in prison. She'd come out of prison. She was homeless for four years. Uh, she had addiction issues going on, she, which she was struggling with at that tournament, in fact. And uh, she hadn't seen her children for a long time. Uh, and then she said, oh, hang on, I've just got to go and play. And she took her tracksuit top off and went down onto the onto the pitch there and played for the women's Welsh team. And I watched her score the first goal she had ever scored for anyone ever. Wow. And she scored it for Wales. And I, I can see the reaction that she had. She just spun and spun and spun. And then suddenly she was back into the game, you know. And I've stayed in touch with Dee ever since. And I've seen how it's changed her life. You know, now she's uh, she's she's on top of her addiction issues. She was actually the mascot. So we've got this mascot for the Homeless World Cup called Flame or Flam in Welsh, a, a Welsh dragon. And we went to visit a school the other day uh, because a young lad had won the competition to name the, the mascot for the Homeless World Cup. And Dee was the mascot. She was inside the mascot <laughs> uniform. Uh, and it was brilliant to see her and just, just to see how her life has changed around this. And and everyone has a story like that. So when I when I was there at Oslo, I could see what a brilliant thing this was. And just taking part in it is transformational for people. Um, but I also saw the opportunity for it to be a platform for what could happen after the tournament. Um, and that was when I started to think, I really want to try and bring this to Wales uh, and to be a part of putting this on and giving people this experience, but also to engage 
with the public, with local authorities, with Welsh government, Westminster government, service providers, funders, and try and find new collaborations using the tournament as a platform uh, for the legacy afterwards. So that's the kind of work that we're putting into it, and that's why I've been so committed to it. That's where I was going to go next, Michael. So it's 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 a it's a homeless World Cup, but it's obviously in your vision for what's going to be happening. Uh, and uh, on the day this is going to be going out, you'll, there'll be sort of five days to go until the final on the Saturday, the third of August. Um, right. Uh, it's 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 a it's a big festival, isn't it? With of politics it and and tell us about that aspect of it. Yeah. So obviously you've got this fantastic football tournament happening for a week. So it's Saturday to Saturday, uh, July twenty seventh to August third in Butte Park next to the castle. It's a free event. Uh, it's not ticketed, so it's first come first serve. Everyone's welcome there. So as well as the tournament itself. Uh, We've also got uh, the music festival side of things. So we've got Welsh bands, the best of Welsh bands, both Welsh language and English language. We've got people like uh, James Dean Bradfield from the Manic Street Peaches. We've got Charlotte Church. We've got Gweno. We've got Euros Childs from Gorky's Zygotic Monkey. Ed, are you a fan of Gorky's? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, all right. Definitely. I love Gorky's. Yeah, so Euros will be here. In fact, we're kicking off with Euros on on Monday night. Um, And uh, we've got Buzzard, Buzzard, Buzzard. Who are the uh, who have written the official song for the World Cup as well, which is fantastic, called Daffodil Hill. So that'll be happening in the in the evenings. Um, and then we've got the Bevan Tent, which is where all the debates and panels and talks, uh, podcasts, uh, stand-up comedy. We've got Sarah Pascoe coming down to do some stand-up for us. We've got the Guilty Feminist coming and doing their podcast from there. We've got Shreds coming and doing their podcast. Um, we've got all kinds of fantastic things going on there. So people can come down and engage in whatever way they want to. You can watch the football, listen to the bands, come in and get involved in the debates as well. Um, so I think it's going to be a fantastic experience. We've got over 500 people coming from 50 different countries to take part and represent their nations. Uh, so I think it's going to be just I, I can't believe that it's actually happening. It's been two years now since we made the bid. Um, and now that it's actually getting, I've been welcoming teams. I've been, uh, you know, down there on the site and it's just amazing. Talk to us, Michael, about how this fits into your social activism, because you and I have worked together on this issue of high cost credit, uh, companies like Bright House that charge very high prices. We There's been some legal change, uh, credit unions, but, but it's part of your sort of life at the moment. Well, not just at the moment, yeah. but it's part of your life now, isn't it? That you're doing yeah. the acting, but you're also doing lots of this work. Yeah. Well, I suppose, I mean, I, I, we've talked about this before, but I suppose it, you know, when you get a little bit of celebrity as, as an actor or, you know, I'm sure yourself as well, Ed, you know, you get asked to come along and get involved with things. Will you come down and have a photograph for this? Will you put your name to this? Will you be a patron of that or whatever? So I started doing more and more of that kind of thing. Um, and then I started to sort of look into what was going on in different communities, not just in, in in the South Wales area that I come from, and not just Wales, around Britain and even internationally. I was looking for things, people, organisations, projects, systems that were being really effective in communities, and particularly in communities that had, you know, some uh, socioeconomic challenges. Um, and And through doing that, I started to hear certain things come up again and again, you know, and one of the things that I started hearing more and more was about the idea of people struggling with debt. And a lot of the time in, in the sort of communities that I know in uh, back at home, uh, the, that debt was coming as a result of getting involved with, with high cost credit, you know, payday lenders and rent to own companies and that kind of stuff. 
And when it got to the point where I was hearing that story, not just coming from people I was meeting in communities, but coming from friends and even family members of mine, uh, I started to see that this was a really, really big problem. And 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 so I started looking into you know why this was happening and why pe- why there weren't better alternatives, why why people were able to be exploited like this, and why certain communities were were more at risk of of exploitation than others. And you know, and even though issues like homelessness, high cost credit, uh, even local journalism, you know, things that seem quite separate in some ways. Actually, they're they're all connected. It's all about people getting a fairer deal. You know, why why are certain people uh, having a harder time than others when it's through no fault of their own? And and coming from the sort of background that I come from, from Port Albert and and the South Wales communities there, um, I suppose it just makes you kind of feel like, well, the people who come from these places are, are no less deserving than people who come from quite affluent areas that maybe I'm filming in at times. You know. Um, and it just seems like, you know, I, I know that people that I, the people in the community I come from aren't lazy, aren't, you know, aren't less deserving of opportunity than anyone else. So what's wrong with a system that, that seems to be rigged towards certain communities and, and against others? And, and so it came out of that, really. It's, it's about looking at what, what is holding certain communities back, what is stopping certain communities from having the same opportunities as others, and what can be done about it. We have a thing on the podcast, Michael, called the uh, uh, Jeffocracy, which is where my colleague Jeff is a, he says, benign ruler. And I have to say the Jeffocracy looks rather less absurd today than it did yesterday, <laughs> given given, uh, given who, who we've now got uh, leading us uh, as a country if you if he sort of gave you complete carte blanche what, what if i made michael prime minister yeah i've offered it to you but you keep threatening to stage a coup yeah so i'm, I'm gonna <laughs> offer it to michael what's instead. the sort of first thing that you would as as you look around port talbot or the, the other people that you deal with the other places you talk to what do you think the country needs sort of most of all what would be top of your list well i think well oh You've got oh, complete gosh. carte blanche in these. Yeah, in these. the heady power. I'm Je- Jeff, is a, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, power. Jeff is a very hands-off ruler. Know, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I suppose partly I think there is there is overlooked engines of change in this country. You know, I a lot of the, the places I visited, you know, like I talked about, going and looking for what is what what's happening that's effective in communities. Um, one of the things that I've I, that that comes up again and again is that often the person who's at the heart of something effective going on in a community is a woman over the age of 50. That's the first thing. I think women over the age of the 50 are uh, a neglected engine of change for this country. They're often women who are not getting uh, paid for what they're doing. It's often, A lot of it is voluntary, or if they are paid, they're paid very little, and they go over and above you know, what, what, what that pay is, is supporting. Um, they're often the most connected within the community. They are com- totally compassionate, but also real like engines of change, like real dynamos, um, and, and, and often being stretched to the very edge of what they can cope with emotionally and psychologically. So one of the things I would do is try and give the support to those women across the whole of Britain, uh, because there is an army of change there that, that, that goes overlooked and, and unsung. Well, best of luck to, to Wales in the Homeless World Cup. Can I kind of put it to you that your support for this is almost entirely for altruistic reasons, but you there is a little bit of you that thinks Wales are going to do better in this football tournament <laughs> than perhaps in other football tournaments? Listen, 
if ever Wales was going to win it, it's this year. <laughs> and and also what what what's great as well is that the way that the tournament works is is so that you know nobody turns up turns up on the first day, loses and goes home. It's done in such a way that the traditional method of getting to the final and winning is there. But also what happens is everyone sorts themselves out into kind of sub tournaments as it goes along, so that everyone gets to play until you know right up to the end. So what I also say is I guarantee you that Wales will be there on the final day. Of- <laughs> Michael Sheen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been brilliant, and everyone should go to the Homeless World Cup. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Outro time. Yep. I'm searching for optimism, and you can tell from my mood. So. I felt like I needed to tickle you when you arrived today. Your mood seemed so low. Quite black. Uh, so, 25 years ago. Uh, to this year, I remember being at the Labour Party conference when t- remember Tony Blair gave that clause four speech, and it was you know whatever people think it was seen as a great triumph. And somebody said to me that evening, "Nothing is ever as good or as bad as it looks on the day." Right. I mean, I think that's I think that isn't the problem with that sort of phrase. It's not hundred percent true. It's not true in every circumstance, but I think there is sort of you know you know. Let's see how this all plays out. Do you know what I mean? Darkness only lasts the night time. In the morning it will fade away. Daylight is good as arriving at the right time. It's not always going to be this way. All things must pass, George Harrison. The darkest hour is before the dawn. All these things, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly a pretty dark hour. <laughs> Really grasping, aren't we? Really grasping in the darkness for the optimism this week. I think we better do it. Thank yeah. you. I'd like to thank Emmy Murphy, Rob McKenzie, and Felix Finkbeiner. And thanks to Michael Sheen for telling us about the Homeless World Cup in Cardiff. Emma Corsham produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the iDents. Ed Seed composed the music. And the artwork was by Emily Power. He's been tremendous. He's been the king of the jungle. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.